0: Welcome to episode 111 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic and our weekly co-host and my BFF and just the all-around awesome Dan. Dan, this is a long intro, but I love you and I'm happy to, to, to be recording 111 with you.
1: It really is a long interview and there's nothing I can do to equal that, Leslie. So how you doing other than wanting to give people long intros?
0: <laughs> uh, you know, *Crazy Anatomy had a big episode this week. Movie theaters are starting to open. Disneyland's on track to open. WandaVision ended. It's been a busy week and not all of it's been awful.
1: Uh, you know, we're also. I mean, I, I I wished the listeners a happy quarantine anniversary last week. So as we're recording this, that's what the world is largely celebrating. Is everybody's remembering where they were before they found out that uh, that Tom Hanks and and Rita Wilson had the Rona, and that is, you know, just that's what everyone's doing. So I,
0: I remember <laughs> Pamela Adlon coming in and doing an interview in our. A former office building conference room and we were sitting across and we were talking all about it and like should we be doing this like and then we post for pictures after but we didn't shake hands we like did the elbow bump thing and it was really weird but
1: well fun, and, now, nonetheless. and now we just talk to people via the internet and that's that's what we call human contact so so let's get to what actually happened this week outside of anniversary news
0: Well, leading off in renewal news, Apple has handed out another early pickup, this time to Lauren Bouchard's animated comedy Central Park. Netflix's animated short-form comedy Special will end with an expanded second season. USA Network's Queen of the South will also wrap its run with its fifth and final season. And CBS has handed out a quick second season pickup for Queen Latifah's Equalizer redo.
1: In other streaming news, Apple has greenlit the limited series Lady in the Lake based on the novel of the same name and tapped Natalie Portman and Lupita Nyong'o to star.
0: Loudermilk, the Farrelly Brothers comedy starring Ron Livingston that was left homeless after Audience Network was rebranded as an HBO Max preview channel, has found a new home at Amazon, which will have library rights the first two seasons and debut the third season domestically for the first time.
1: That is definitely a TV show that I vaguely remember existed at some point.
0: It's a victim of peak TV. And, you know, when you have a, a cable platform trying to do originals and then suddenly not, and it was just some for some reason didn't wind up on HBO Max as an original or a streamer, even though the third season was in the can. It was I got to find a home somewhere. And Amazon's done this before. Right. They picked up Tell Me Your Secrets after TNT passed on on airing the drama and passed on putting it on HBO Max, too.
1: And they've sort of picked up on other people's discards that don't have new episodes and kind of gotten more buzz for them. Something like Wayne, which was the YouTube original that uh, that mysteriously appeared on Amazon a little while ago. And suddenly people were talking about it. Also, Flack, I guess, from Pop, which got no buzz whatsoever when Pop aired two full seasons of it. And suddenly when it popped up on Amazon as a quote unquote original, suddenly people on my Twitter feed were talking about it. But guess what? It was mediocre before and it was still mediocre.
0: Yeah, anyway. the, the quote—the quote from Peter Farrelly in the Milk press release was basically like, "This is—I look forward to this breaking through the way that Cobra Kai did."
1: Um, which, sure. <laughs> but, but it's still funny because uh, a Ron Livingston is fairly good in *Loudermilk*. Not—not a, not a bad show at all. But also, it's the thing that Peter Farrelly was working on when he directed a Best Picture Oscar winner, which is still a vaguely ridiculous and remarkable and completely and totally undeserved thing that happened. But it doesn't change the fact that. There was this existing show that was being executive produced by someone whose movie had just won the Best Picture Oscar and it was in limbo. So weird stuff. Anyway, continuing in casting news, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah BAPTA nominee and former uh, HBO The Deuce star Dominique Fishback will star opposite Samuel L. Jackson in Walter Mosley's Apple drama The Last Days of Ptolemy Gray. Former Lost star Josh Holloway will reunite with J.J. Abrams for the HBO Max drama Duster. Dakota Fanning will star opposite Andrew Scott in Showtime's Ripley series. The CW has found its Powerpuff Girls in Dove Cameron, Chloe Bennett, and uh, Yana Peralt, set to do star in the live action drama from Diablo Cody and Greg Berlanti. That still perplexes me, but we'll see what it actually looks like. And in news that's surprised to no one, America Ferrara is returning for the Superstar series finale, which is set to air on March 25th on NBC.
0: And you can go back and listen to our great interview with America Ferrara from episode 91 back in October. Rounding out headlines this week in executive news, Film Nation film and TV president Ben Browning has been tapped to run Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's Netflix-based production company. And longtime MGM TV president Steve Stark has left for the quote-unquote producing deal with Epic's chief, Michael Wright, taking on additional responsibilities and reporting to Mark Burnett. So just when you thought the executive carousel had stopped, nope.
1: Leslie, I never thought the executive carousel had stopped.
0: (laughs) Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five.
2: Number one,
0: leading off this week, it's the interview heard around the world. Oprah Winfrey sat down with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle for an extensive interview that quickly became the story of the week. So much so that it's going to be our first two topics this week, Dan. So let's start with on screen. So. The interview just bombshell after bombshell. Markle, the former suit star, of course, said that she struggled with thoughts of suicide after facing racism and unrelenting tabloid press she said she requested professional help but was told by the institution behind the royal family that help wasn't possible she also noted the royal family had concerns over their baby's skin color oprah of course later clarified it wasn't the queen or prince philip who raised those concerns but yeah this was a riveting interview to say the least
1: it was a it was a very good interview it was um you know, you you talked about bombshell after bombshell, and I guess that wasn't really exactly the way I responded. I felt like a lot of people definitely did. You know, a lot of people were like pumping out 10 things you were shocked to learn from the Meghan Markle, uh, Harry, Oprah interview and all of that. And there was definitely a perception of that. I guess to me, there was a, I don't want to say it fulfilled suspicions or it fulfilled fears. I was more saddened by the whole thing than I was shocked by it. There were only one or two things that made me go, wow. And even the things that made me go, wow, they kind of followed from the rest. Like, as you say, the conversation about what color the baby turns out to be. Well, I mean, obviously that's horrifying and that's gross and that's surprising. But was it really shocking to know that there might be racists somewhere in the the royal family, Insti- you know, as she she called it, the firm or the institution or whatever you want it is no. That to me that wasn't shocking, and it definitely wasn't shocking that those pieces of information would be relayed to Harry and not to Meghan. So there were a lot of things like that where. I guess basically what it did was it confirmed my worst suspicions about kind of the monarchy and about the way the monarchy handles new additions. And anyone who, of course, watched the most recent season of The Crown or has watched any of The Crown has some sense of it. It's not—I'm not talking on a plot level. I'm talking on a—the whole thesis of what Peter Morgan has been doing for four seasons on The Crown has been— to kind of give an idea of an institution in which the person who's wearing the literal crown is only the figurehead. They're a representative. They're a person who cannot really necessarily change the way things get done because there's this infrastructure and hundreds upon hundreds of years of entrenched history. And hundreds of hundreds of years of entrenched history would not respond well to a Biracial American actress suddenly coming into the family, and you can understand how that would be. And yet, hearing the specific details, of course, it's it's awful. It's it's tragic. It's sad. And and yeah, you you can't. Well, I mean, apparently, if you're the British tabloid press uh, or Piers Morgan, you can easily not believe the things she said. Um, I found myself completely, totally able to believe the things she said. There, are, there are some things where there's a certain measure of incredulity simply because different people have different personality types. Like if I meet the person who's fifth or sixth in line to the British throne at a party and I'm about to go out on a date with them the next day, you can be sure that I am going on Google and going down a rabbit hole on every piece of information about that person imaginable, but also every bit of protocol related to that person Everything. Like, I, I am Googling the shit out of that experience. And apparently, this is not something that Meghan Markle did. And if that's not something she does as a personality, who am I to say that, you know, she should have? Uh, there were definitely things that she was surprised by that if she'd Googled for five or six hours in a horrible death spiral, she would have learned. But that being said, she met someone she thought she liked. And apparently, she met someone she thought she liked after having just had a brief date with Piers Morgan. So, I mean, good God, if you want to extricate yourself from that as a life possibility, who could blame you for wanting to latch on to the next thing? Uh, no, they're, they're a very, they're, they're a genuinely sweet couple is the, is the silly and ridiculous thing. And this was also the case in the James Corden 20-minute thing that Prince Harry did last week. Uh, Prince Harry seems fairly likable once you forget youthful indiscretions like dressing in Nazi costumes and thinking that was cool. Um, so yeah, it and well, you know once again the biggest takeaway that everyone is is getting from this and one that is not really a bombshell either is Oprah Winfrey's a really good interviewer when she wants to be. She is just such a freaking pro at the thing that she does. She is so good at knowing when to talk. She is so good at knowing when to just shake her head until the person says whatever the next thing is on their mind, you know, give them a pause to decide if they want to say things. She has some ticks as an interviewer that, get on my nerves a little bit just like i'm sure that probably we both have some tics as interviewers that get on our listeners nerves you know she she gets a little chummy with people so so she goes down long stories about having been invited to the wedding and how lovely it was well we we get it oprah you're you're oprah you get invited to to fancy gala events that's that's fine you you don't need to remind us that you're oprah winfrey we we are well aware (laughs) but but just in the balance as an interviewer she is always so prepared she is so careful and caring, and she does such a good job when she wants to of not making the interviews about her. And that, to me, was what this was. This felt like a very good person knowing when to sit back, and it was a fairly efficiently produced piece. Uh, There was very little embellishing, dramatic music or excessive number of clips. Mostly the director knew to keep the camera on Megan's face, to keep the camera on Harry's face, to get Oprah's incredulous reactions to things. It was it was very simply produced, but in exactly the right ways. And yeah, it was it was it was gripping. I hadn't necessarily planned on watching the whole thing, and I definitely delayed 30 minutes so I didn't have to deal with the constant commercials. But other than that, and, you know, given the amount of money that CBS, A, paid to acquire the interview, and B, had to make off of advertising on that, I understand. Uh, but yeah, it was it was a good interview, and it was a good compliment to, if you happen to have been watching The Crown, and heaven knows, everyone on my Twitter feed was making jokes about season five and six of The Crown, even though if you go back and listen to our interview with Peter Morgan from 150 years ago— uh, That would be
0: episode 48 <laughs> from November 2019.
1: I threw that out because I sensed you would probably have that information handy, and you did. Um, yeah, it, I think I think if you go back to that interview, he made it pretty clear that he has no desire to be dealing with the recent things. And, and why would he? I mean, his whole thing is giving a behind-the-scenes peek into what might or might not be going on in the palace – And Meghan Markle did that for Oprah. There, there is nothing to be gained from Peter Morgan attempting to dramatize the thing that Meghan Markle already dramatized for 18 million people. So yeah, it was, it was a very good interview, a very satisfying interview. And I am not surprised that as many people watched it as did. And that is why we are splitting it this into two topics, because there are a lot of business sides to this in addition to just, was it a good and worthwhile interview? number two
0: and speaking of course the ratings and the business side of it you mentioned cbs did cash in big time with eight nearly 18 million same day viewers it's one of the biggest non-sports broadcasts of the year in the uk the special collected another 11 million viewers but there was also a problem because when people went to stream this dan because it wasn't on paramount plus which in case you haven't been listening to our last couple episodes Recently was just rebranded and it was this big muckety muck. Hey, we're no longer CBS All Access. We've got all this great content. Come to Paramount Plus. We have a mountain of entertainment. That would be time to take a shot if you're counting every time I say mountain regarding Paramount Plus. Anyway, so yeah, it wasn't on Paramount Plus because, well, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle have a Netflix deal and Oprah has her own Apple deal. And this was just a big missed opportunity. And if you wanted to stream it, it was available, it is available for a limited time. On CBS.com. So
1: Yeah, there there was mixed messaging that took place or confusing messaging because it was on Paramount Plus in the sense that Paramount Plus has live coverage of CBS. So Right, if the you, live feed. Exactly. Yeah. So if you watched your Paramount Plus feed, which some people were instructed to do that night because they don't, you know, get terrestrial TV, then you could absolutely watch it then. But this meant that this massive streaming service that premiered without any marquee original programming in the same weekend as CBS had the biggest interview and television event not related to sports in the year, there was no way for Paramount Plus to, to capitalize. They they couldn't, you know, the interview cannot live on Paramount Plus due to contractual reasons, and that is a miss. And the original clips, the, the new excised clips from the interview, they premiered on CBS this morning, they premiered online, but they didn't premiere on Paramount Plus. I, I feel like in retrospect, there had to have been... A deal that somebody could have made where for an additional handful of million, CBS would have been able to funnel some of those clips or a little bit of, I don't know, just a little bit of the buzz and juice over to Paramount+, Plus because it really could use the boost. And instead, they had the biggest interview of the year, and it fed into, you know, CBS.com, which is just fine. And... And yeah, and CBS is going to re-air it on Friday. So yeah, that's. It. But but still, in all, if you if you thought, boy, this would be a good chance to promote your new gigantic platform, it was not.
0: Yeah, and you know we can d- dovetail a little bit into Paramount Plus because what did they have available at launch that was your your must tune in and and I should rephrase not available at launch but available at relaunch and it was the same stuff. The big their big new draw was was the new the new old version of Real World. So. I haven't heard a lot of people talking about it. I've seen some nice coverage of it here and there, but that's not exactly a friends reunion type thing, which this could have been. This could have been, hey, we're here. Check us out. Here's brand. You know, here's the specialist streaming. And by the way, we just relaunched and we've got all this mountain of entertainment. So that's two shots. But in in a larger sense, you know, the interview also prompted some big changes in the U.K., Piers Morgan imploded after saying on air that he didn't believe Markle and wound up, quote-unquote, quitting ITV's Good Morning Britain after waves of criticism, potentially f- including from Markle herself. But, yeah, I mean, you want to talk about fallout, there's your almost immediate fallout.
1: And Piers Morgan brought it upon himself and it it's sort of unclear exactly what happened with Good Morning Britain there and you know how permanent it's going to be and how long Piers Morgan is going to be without that platform and I don't particularly care one way or the other. It you know it's important to it's important to remember that Piers Morgan is depending on your definition or your generosity. He's he's a troll, he's a shit poster. He's a provocateur. I mean, I think that would be the more polite way of saying what he is. His his goal is to get under your skin, and definitely he did. The embarrassing thing where when a colleague called him out on his particular prejudices, which are big and ugly and completely evident— And he petulantly walked off the stage like a baby. I assume that was half performance art and half him actually being a petulant baby. But with Pierce Morgan, you don't you don't know what's performance art and what's real, and that's just his thing. And I am glad that he's not a regular TV fixture on American TV where I have to deal with it. It's you know he's he's awful, but he's beloved for that awfulness, and I'm you know, there's definitely an audience in the UK that feels what he feels. There is no question that if you look at the way the British media was covering this interview, it was very different from the way that the American media was covering this interview in the same way that if you look at the way that the British media covered the entire wedding and its fairy tale aspects and the aftermath, it was very different from the way the American media covered it. So there was always that prejudice aspect to the way the British media was covering her. And she talked about it extensively in the interview. I, You know, I don't think anyone reasonable could disagree with that as a contention, uh, but yeah, no, it it was. It, look, whatever. Piers Morgan is a gigantic personality in the UK on American TV. He's mostly been a a judge and an unsuccessful talk show host, um, and that is just fine. But definitely, there was a lot of fallout from that because he was the loudest of the of the people naysaying on the interview.
0: Yeah. And, you know, meanwhile, Buckingham Palace issued a statement after the interview saying the family was saddened to learn how challenging the past few years were for the couple and said, quote, The issues raised, particularly that of race, are concerning. While some recollections may vary, they are taken very seriously and will be addressed by the family privately. (laughs)
1: So it's saying maybe it was true, maybe it wasn't true. It probably was true, but you're never but it's actually gonna none know. your business. It's none your business. <laughs> and again, this this all goes back once again to uh to the crown and just the sense of layers of either insulation or isolation, depending on your perspective, that exist amongst the royals and their ability to be oblivious to the world, and there have been many whole episodes dedicated to the idea that Queen Elizabeth, while she might mean well, sometimes Bungles emotional reactions to things. It was basically the plot of the movie The Queen. It was the plot of the Aberfan episode of The Crown, which is one of the best episodes of that show. And again, to keep in mind, The Crown is a fictionalized depiction of the life of the royals. This was something that uh, I thought that Harry said very well in the interview with James Corden, where He appreciated the crown because reasonable people knew it was not supposed to be a documentary, and so it didn't offend him in the same way that the British media reporting on things offended him. And so that's the way that I view the Crown, not in a this literally happened way, but in a this is a way of making sense of the way that the royal family looks to us from the outside. Here's an inside perspective that allows you to fathom it if you want to. And so this sort of oblivious statement from the the royal family is exactly the sort of thing that Peter Morgan has educated us to expect. This This fits with the royals who we think we know from watching the fictionalized version of them they definitely like to be oblivious.
0: And it'll be interesting I think, you know, Morgan has said if you go back and listen to that interview, which is one of my favorites that we've done, Dan, he talks extensively about how much research and how big their research team is and and what they go into before the, before he even starts writing the season. And he's continued to say that that Harry and Megan will not be Explored on The Crown. But now you've got Harry and Meghan also with an overall deal at Netflix. Peter Morgan's got an overall deal with Netflix. I don't know. I'm just putting it out there. I really wonder if there will be another show or another season or what could happen now that all all three are under the same roof. So.
1: Personally, I have no interest whatsoever in seeing a dramatization of something that was plenty dramatized by the real people. I, I saw several people jestingly suggesting that Meghan Markle should play herself in season in season fifteen. <laughs> Apparently, you thought that was a funny idea. I didn't find it funny. I thought it was, I thought it was a tone deaf interpretation of what the show has always been, and wanting the show to be something other than what it is. And so, yeah, I this. There's no reason for the Crown to want to handle this, and I hope that they don't. And I trust that Peter Morgan is a smart enough person that he knows that if he wants to tackle what has been happening in the past four or five years, he should probably do it in about 25 years. Definitely, it is not a thing that you should expect to see in 2024 or something.
0: Yeah, and you can go back and listen once again. That, that would be episode 48 of TV's Top 5.
2: Number three.
1: Up next, it's been a busy week for Peacock which added a Dan Brown drama to its roster and a potential franchise from Game of Thrones creator George R.R. R. Martin. Now, given that Peacock and its original programming and buzz-generating entities thus far have mostly consisted of a Punky Brewster reboot, a Saved by the Bell reboot, and for people who like such things, the Amber Ruffin show is really, really good. Uh, but these shows that got picked up this week suggest a... Larger, bigger picture look at what the streamer might be attempting, and fortunately, when one needs a bigger picture look at what streamers are attempting, that's what Leslie's here for. So Leslie, break it down.
0: Well, I just want to clarify one thing. You know, Wild Cards, which which is from Game of Thrones creator George R. R. Martin, is still in development. That project moved over from Hulu, where former Secret Circle creator Andrew Miller had spent the last two years or so working on two interconnected shows. He had seven episodes of one already in the can, three episodes of another already written and completed, and they passed. And, you know, we have a lot of details in in my story from that week if you're curious, but it's a fascinating backstory bought by Joel Stillerman. And then, of course, Stillerman was out after less than a year. And then the new administration thought it was too dark, but it was based on Wildcard's Properties that were picked by Stillerman, who, of course, came from AMC and did a bunch of dark shows there. Um, and now it's coming back. So Wild Cards, the rights are owned by Universal Content Productions, which is the cable and streaming focused studio of NBC Universal, which also backs Peacock. So, again, we talk a ton about ownership on this show. This is what's happening with Wild Cards. It's moving from Hulu, which is owned by Disney, to Peacock, which is owned by NBCU. And the plan is to turn this Or at least for Hulu, as as it was with Miller, the plan is to turn this into potentially a a massive franchise, multiple shows, kind of the way that literally everyone else is doing, right? You know, so Paramount Plus has a bazillion Star Trek shows. There's a, you know... umpteen walking dead shows game of thrones are trying to make a bazillion things into it's the same idea here right cbs has 35 ncis shows and and nbc's got 17 dick wolf shows and they're all cross-connected and everything it's the same idea it's you need a franchise it's the same thing that netflix is interested in doing and with the pickups this week you know what's interesting langdon for example was developed for nbc a year ago it was picked up to pilot last year in the quote-unquote before times and finished production post pandemic and they basically looked at it and said this could be a potential franchise. It it's it is based on the Dan Brown books. Those were a movie franchise with Tom Hanks. The same thing could be true here. You've got Ashley Zuckerman who is from Succession who's starring in the in the show and what I find interesting is both of these properties could be that multi-show universe. And both things have existing fan bases, which is why IP remains such a big deal, you know, and why everyone's paying crazy money for big rights, right? Look, and you look back when Disney bought Marvel, when Disney bought Lucasfilm, same thing, and you see how valuable that is to Disney Plus now because they just hit 100 million subscribers, right? It's what a year old because it's purely on the back of Star Wars and and Marvel, so it's it's kind of the same thing here with NBC Universal, and you're starting to see. They need franchises, right? Yes, they have library rights of SNL and library rights of, of a bunch of Dick Wolf stuff and all this other stuff, but you still need more. You need more big franchises that can bring in the fanboy crowd and look at what at what Netflix is doing with The Witcher, right? That's going to be a franchise, or what, a spinoff or a prequel already in, in the works after one season. You know, we don't know. Of, obviously, we don't know the, the ratings, but we know that, that Netflix is purporting that 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 The Witcher is going to be is a global phenomenon for them, same way that Bridgerton is. And guess what, Bridgerton, while not a big genre play, it's another franchise play in a different bucket. So it's the same idea here. And you know, the other piece that I think is interesting about Langdon specifically is, if a pilot doesn't go to NBC, they've got a bunch of Dick Wolf stuff, the SVU, another Law and Order coming with Chris Maloney, you know, all the Chicago shows. They don't necessarily have room for another procedural type show, right, on the on their linear schedule. But Peacock has an unlimited amount of space. So pilot season could wind up being a testing ground for shows like, hey, this works, but we don't have room, or hey, this works, and maybe it'll be a bigger budget show than we want for a broadcast network. Great. Send it to Peacock. And, you know, the other thing, too, that we haven't really seen yet, but... NBC's new leadership, of course, it's uh, overseen by a content group, overseen by Francis Berwick and Susan Rovner. Well, they've previously said that they're going to take some of their high profile projects and debut them across the company. So we know that the Joe Exotic show starring Kate McKinnon will launch on Peacock and NBC and USA Network. USA Network, you know, as we said in headlines this week, just canceled Queen of the South. They've got next to no scripted shows left. Could Langdon be one of those shows that that launches across multiple networks and the streamer at the same time? It certainly feels right for an NBC show. It feels right for a USA show. And it definitely feels right for whatever Peacock is trying to be. It's an interesting thing that where pilot season could wind up being just, you know, a a training ground of saying it'll be just be a pipeline to the streamer if it doesn't work for broadcast or for anywhere else in your portfolio. Same thing with Hulu, because now you've got remember, you've got Craig Erwick overseeing Hulu and ABC, it's the same thing, right? Broadcast is now the feeding ground for streaming, you know, or the pipeline for streaming. So as it pertains to Peacock, Wild Cards, everything else, Langdon, franchise, franchise, Frankie, franchise, franchise.
1: These all seem like strangely speculative franchise to me i don't i don't know what to, i don't know what to say i mean either you know maybe nbc universal peacock whatever is right that they are uh to me a the name dan brown's langdon is a horrible name to convey what this series is but they obviously don't have the rights to use things like da vinci code or angels and demons in the title except that those things actually tell people what this is. Uh, I like Ashley Zuckerman a lot. I would, I would call him Manhattan star, Ashley Zuckerman, personally, though he definitely was in Succession. I loved but him on Succession. He's, he's very good in Succession. He was great in Manhattan. though. Uh, so you know, I'm just putting a different level on that one. Um, but he's not Tom Hanks in terms of a global brand. He's not going to get people in the door. Uh, and the Right, last, but Ryan
0: Eggold is a brand now? He's got, I mean, that's still, New that's Amsterdam still, is a huge hit.
1: It is it is a large hit, but I don't know if you would necessarily call him a franchise star. He just happens to have been on a very successful show, which is fine. This is more of a star vehicle. I think also some people are forgetting that Angels and Demons was not anywhere near the blockbuster that Da Vinci Code was when it came out. It did very well internationally, but it was not nearly as successful domestically. So that probably hampers things. I don't know that the other George R. R. Martin franchise has again, the same brand recognition as Game of Thrones? Maybe it does. I mean, obviously it has, you know, 25 books or something. So it's... Right,
0: but in the same way that we talk about the nevers, right, and the struggles that HBO is going to have where you can't say from the creator of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and director of, of Avengers, you can say from the creator of Game of Thrones and there's an interest... An immediate interest in that.
1: I think that's true. And you know, again, it 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 maybe gets people in the door. It, in the same way. I'm not sure that a Kate McKinnon Tiger King show probably there's curiosity. But I think we're a solid year past the premiere of Tiger King. Get ready for all of your one-year retrospectives on that particular premiere. <laughs> I, I I feel as if the anticipation or enthusiasm for something like that has diminished dramatically, which does not mean that when the first trailer for the hypothetical thing with Nick Cage, uh as the Tiger King himself drops, that people won't be passing it around Twitter like it's, you know, kibble. I, I just feel like definitely the... The built-in enthusiasm or excitement has vanished and has now been replaced by tempered curiosity. But you can, if you get people in the door with tempered curiosity, if it's actually You're getting people good, in the door. You're getting people in the door. And if it's actually good, they'll stick around. So yeah.
0: Also, it's free to get in the door at Peacock.
1: It, it, for some stuff. And I assume probably with this stuff, it'll, it'll have to be. Uh, but yeah, Peacock still remains one of those multi-tiered things, like where you can watch the first six episodes of The Office for free, but then you have to, Pay to get more, or the first two seasons, whatever it is. Anyway, yeah, it's, it's like I thought list. it
0: was like first twelve episodes or something. Yeah, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a tiered pricing it's a, thing. It's so, a tiered yeah.
1: system, and I assume in some cases some of these will be exclusively behind the paywall, but who knows? Cause or maybe of-
0: they'll launch the pilot on on linear across NBC and USA, and then say watch the rest of the series tomorrow. All ten episodes, or all twenty, however many episodes it's going to be. There's no way it's going to be twenty episodes, but like you know what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, no, definitely, definitely, there will not be a one size fits all release pattern for these. And also, as you emphasized at the top of this segment, the uh, the George R. R. Martin thing is in the earliest stages of development. The Dan Brown-Langton thing is obviously further along, what with them having made a pilot already, but... Uh, and seri-
0: formal series order, yeah.
1: Yeah, so, you know, different, different stages of development, and I think probably by the time the imaginary hypothetical George R. R. Martin thing comes along, we'll have a much better sense of where Peacock fits into the ecosystem.
0: Well said, my friend. Well said. Up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment.
2: Number four.
0: Our guests this week are the creators of HBO Max's Generation. Daniel Barnes is the writer director of Beastly and the director of Cake. His daughter Zelda Barnes is nineteen and was seventeen when they sold the script for what became Generation. This is her first show. Zelda, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast
1: this week. Thank you so thank much you for so having much. us. Jinx. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I need to ask because we're doing this obviously over Google Hangouts or whatever. Are, are you guys doing? Google Hangouts in different rooms of the same house, or are you not quarantining together?
3: Uh, we're not. Yeah, so we're in different rooms of the same house. Um, yeah, we've been we've been in the same bubble, so we're in lockdown together. Technically, yeah.
1: But you decided that for professional purposes, it would be better to have you guys separate. <laughs>
2: think so. Yeah, it's it's worked <laughs> out well for us to have just a little bit of separation. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> that was going to be one
0: of my questions, but yeah, I mean, you know, working together, obviously you're, you know, the, you're still in production, I believe. And then at the end of the day, it's not like you can't go home and say, "Oh man, I had the shittiest day, man, my boss at work," right? Like that's not something that's happening here. <laughs> or is it? I mean, you tell me.
2: I mean, <laughs> we can say it, but then it's like I'm looking at my boss. <laughs> and I'm like, "Boss, I had the shittiest day."
1: Well, okay. I mean, you guys are both, you're, you're co-creators, you're both executive producers, so which of you is the boss?
3: I, it's definitely a collaboration. Um, <laughs> it's just definitely, I would say it's a pretty even split when it comes to, like, um, making final decisions, especially creative decisions. Um, I think we both, there are definitely situations in which I will defer to Daniel if um It requires more experience, and there are definitely situations where he will defer to me if it's a situation where authenticity is really important and
1: key. See, and this leads to so many of the most predictable questions imaginable, like, So he's Daniel on set, I take it.
3: Yes. Well, here's the thing that I've noticed. When I say my dad, people always have to ask which one because I have two, obviously. So um, I usually say, I mean, like I'll call him dad when I'm talking to him. But when I refer to him to other people, when I'm talking to other people, I usually say Daniel and Ben just because I always get that question and then I have to like backtrack. So, yeah.
2: And no, in I mean, that I mean, case, her other dad is also a producer on the project, so it's even more confusing.
1: Yeah, I can't imagine actually being on set and, like, shouting out to your dad in a professional capacity as dad. That, <laughs> And then having two people turn around. Yeah, of course. Okay, so Zelda... Time is, of course, relative, and you guys started writing this when you were seventeen, and you're 19 now. Does it feel like this all came together overnight, or from your perspective, was this an endless process that's taken forever to actually make it to TV?
3: Definitely endless process from my perspective. Um, just because when we first kind of when we first started talking about the first like little seeds of this idea, um, I was actually 15, and so yeah, it's been it's been about four years since we first started kind of crafting this project and talking about what we wanted this project to be. So, yeah, it's felt like a really long time. Um, Yeah, it's just, it's felt like such an ongoing thing. And now that it's finally coming out, it's just like crazy.
2: Plus, I don't, I mean, I don't know if you guys feel this way, but I just think in covid Times a time is so weird, you know, and it's been almost exactly a year since we started our writer's room. And then we had to kind of quickly, you know, move into a remote format. And, you know, we began shooting in the end of September and it feels like it has gone by in six seconds and has been 100 years.
0: You know, so at at the same time, you know, this is not the typical way a TV show comes together. It's not, it doesn't, you know, start at the dinner table, right? Like the, you know, the way yours did here. But Daniel, I wonder, you know, you've been in this industry for a long time. What kind of conversations have you had with Zelda about how the way that this came together and how it's really just very not normal, very much not normal?
2: Yeah. I mean, we've been trying to explain that from the get go. And, you know, when we began the whole Uh, discussion about the idea of turning it into a TV show, we really didn't have expectations that the show was going to get made at all. Not because we didn't think it was a good idea, but just because so few shows ever get made and this one had kind of an, an unlikely premise and so on. So, you know, we really thought... The whole time that this was just going to be kind of an amazing way to teach Zelda about the work that we do and how you come up with a TV show and so on. And at every moment, we're sort of preparing her for like, and now it's probably going to go away, you know. And there was like a cool moment when, you know, we started talking to Lena Dunham and she was interested in the idea. And we thought that's the high. That's the amazing thing. Like Zelda gets to meet Lena and like, how cool is that? And then it all goes away. And, you know, and up through even to the first time that we walked into, to, you know, actually pitch the show, there was a lot of conversations about this is what it is to be a TV writer. You know, you have ideas, you are passionate about them, you're excited, you go and you pitch your heart out, people smile at you, and then they say no. It just always happens that way. And then... um It didn't happen that way for Zelda. So she's like still a little mystified, you know, why we have been complaining and whining for so many years. Um, (laughs) And we thought, you know, we thought as parents, like if this all goes away, that's a great lesson because it, it teaches you about grit and resilience. And I think that's the thing I think you need most as a television writer is just grit and resilience. So we were hoping to pass that lesson on to Zelda, but we weren't that successful.
0: Right. It's like going to Vegas and winning, you know, the, the very first time you go,
1: right? Beginner's
2: luck. It's exactly right. Yeah.
1: Well, Zelda, from your
2: perspective,
1: did you listen when they tried telling you those things about this is eventually going to end? This is not actually going to become a series? or Or did you always kind of believe that it would happen?
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think at first I was like, oh, when I was like, you know, 16, I was like, it would be super cool to have a show on air. And I kind of like, fantasized about it a little bit, but I was kind of also like in my wildest dreams. And also my parents have been telling me like, it's impossible to get a show made. This isn't necessarily going to get made. I really just did not think it was going to happen. Definitely a small part of me was like obviously hoping and wanted it to happen so bad, but I just thought realistically, and I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a pessimist, but I'm definitely a bit of a realist. Just it was so unlikely, and so I tried not to let myself get too hopeful. Um, so, yeah, I definitely did not think that it was going to turn into what it has turned into.
2: <laughs> Zelda fully is a
1: pragmatist. Yeah. But it's funny because people are obviously going to hear this story, and I don't know what the the ratio is going to be, but there are going to be people who think it's kind of the most awesome family story in the history of the world and the cutest, sweetest thing. And then there are going to be people whose eyes are going to roll back into their head and are going to go, "Okay, this is this is an example of privilege. This is an example of, you know, a great narrative, you know, being the thing. How conscious are you of, I don't know, the opportunity that this is that you've gotten? And what have you done to sort of make sure that people who maybe haven't had the same sorts of opportunities were in the writer's room, et cetera?
3: Yeah, definitely. I'm, I think I'm very conscious of the opportunity. To be honest, I think part of that comes with being adopted. I think knowing how incredibly lucky I am to have been placed with a family that was able to support me and able to be so incredibly supportive of all of my dreams and all of my ideas, um, I think that's always been something that I'm very conscious of and making sure that I take advantage of that situation that I've been gifted with, I think is also really important to me, um, making sure I like make make the most of my incredibly lucky situation with my family. Um, so I've definitely always worked really hard um, and I've always wanted to do something like this, some kind of big creative project. Um, I've never really wasted time. I think that's always been something that I've just, I've this is something I've wanted so bad for so long. Um, yeah, definitely, but I am also very aware that it's an opportunity that not many people get. Um, our writer's room is really incredible. Uh, we definitely, we interviewed so many people. I think that's probably the biggest way we made sure that we were getting, um, a multitude of voices whose voices might differ from ours in a lot of ways, whose experiences and life experiences might not be the same as ours. Um, so yeah, our, our writer's room was definitely kind of a group of people who came from, various different places who could speak to experiences our characters had that we couldn't necessarily speak to.
2: And was, uh, majority queer, majority people of color, majority female, because it was really important to us in terms of writing for characters of color from all different kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds that we were being conscious. And I think, you know, to your question, Daniel, like, I I think, I mean, haters going to hate, You know, you can't do much about it. As a dad, I'm so protective. And I just want to say all those people, you know, who might resent. First of all, I would be the first person to resent Zelda. Like if I didn't know her, I would just be like so annoyed by this teenager who has a TV show on the air and just literally like roll my eyes back in my head multiple times. But what I want is for all those people who are annoyed to meet Zelda because the thing that's really cool is I feel like she's just really remained very grounded and very humble through this process and isn't like that. Oh yeah, I deserve this kind of a mentality at all. So I want you all to meet Zelda A is like the thing. Um, And, you know, I think the other pieces that we have are constantly trying with this production to, think about where our blind spots are, you know, and where are our blind spots in terms of race and ethnicity and different ways that people identify across sexuality and gender spectrums and so so economic privilege. And that's what we try to do is, is sort of make sure that we're surrounding ourselves with people who can say, you know what, you're not thinking about that. And you're the unintended message of this thing is that that helps us to be more authentic and to create better representation. We're never going to be perfect, but it's good for us to try to always be aware of our blind spots.
0: Right. And and one of the things that I do want to touch on, you know, we talked um, last month when you guys were debuting the trailer, but one of the things that I want to make sure comes through in this interview too, is how this show started. You know, you guys are, I, I want to watch a show about your family. I mean, you're an entirely, queer family and this started as a dinner table conversation so maybe just talk a little bit about the priority of making a show not just that that speaks to this current generation but also that reflects the spectrum of what it means to be lgbtq
3: in a lot of shows i felt like i haven't felt very seen i love watching teen shows i love watching shows with queer representation um but i don't necessarily feel like i've seen a character that really feels like me or represents me well Um, on screen yet. And so I really kind of wanted to take a stab at characters that reflected me and my friends. And um, I wanted to see a show where I felt like I could see myself in the characters. And um, generally, I think a big part of that is queer representation, just because a lot of queer representation, specifically bi representation, I've found... It tends to be a lot of the same stuff over and over again, where women are often fetishized and men by men are often ignored. And I think that that's really a complicated societal issue. And I just think it's important to kind of in media represent the bisexual community and the queer community across all spectrums in the most authentic way possible.
2: And one thing that Zelda, you know, I I think observed that was, you know, so smart is that so often in in many shows, you know, you have queer characters, but their narratives are fully defined by their queerness. You know, that is that is their story, is them being queer and, you know, they're bullied or they're coming out or whatever. And I think one thing that Zelda wanted to do that we really endeavored to do in this show is to say, OK, these characters are queer and that's one part. And then there's all this other story and narrative and desires and they can be queer, but they can also be water polo players and good students, you know, and to see um, queer people as humans, and and to to make sure that their stories aren't defined solely by their queerness. But um, Leslie, you're right. Yeah, it definitely began around our dinner table conversation. It was really funny at the beginning. Uh, you know, our kids both came out in pretty hilarious ways, and uh, and and then there was this moment where we were all sitting around and talking about what it was like for them to be queer and to come out and how different it was for Ben and for me. And in that moment, it was an epiphany. And it was not a great epiphany because I was like, oh, no, I thought I was really cool, like I was like the cool gay dad. And now I'm realizing I'm just old. I'm just an old dad. And, uh, and I think out of that laughter and that joy um, came the desire to make a show.
1: How did you decide how much of each generation you wanted to have in the show? Because it seems to me like there's an approach to it where the parents are bordering on more equal part, you know, sort of the the different generational approaches to a common thing. And while the parents are very important and you have some great actors playing them, they're definitely still secondary parts of the story.
3: Right. We wanted to make sure that our parents were always... Um their storylines were always kind of shown through our kids' eyes. Um, We're always in our kids' perspectives. They're always going to be like our primary like way in with the show. Um, So, yeah, with parents, we wanted that to be part of the same situation. We wanted to feel like we were seeing these parents through their kids' eyes. And sometimes that's maybe in a slightly different way than those parents see
2: themselves. Yeah, I mean, sometimes those parents are just out of focus in the background, you know, like (laughs) Charlie Brown, like womp, womp, womping, because that's how kids kind of sometimes feel about their parents that they're out of focus and womp, womp, womping in the background. (laughs) Now, in Girls,
1: Lena Dunham rather famously had her character say in the pilot, I think that I may be the voice of my generation. And she took years of shit for that because people didn't realize it was a joke that was directed at the character. But given the title of the show and given Zelda that your age is going to be a part of the narrative people are writing about really for years on this, how conscious do you have to be to avoid pronouncements that in any way resemble I'm the voice of my generation?
3: (laughs) Completely, yeah, very conscious. I mean, we actually didn't even really think about that line in that show when we were coming up with the title. Um, Honestly, the title, it's obviously generation works in a lot of different ways because it's also the noun form of the infinitive to generate. And we were thinking about how Gen Z is generating so much music and art and Gen Z is generating so much on social media. And that was kind of something else that went into thinking about that title. That was kind of a secondary, obviously most people would think of that as kind of a secondary definition. Um, So yeah. I definitely think we have to be conscious of making sure that that's not the pronouncement we're trying to make about being <laughs> voice of my generation or anything like that. That's not We're not trying to say anything like that with this show. We're trying to give a glimpse into a very specific small part of this generation, which is part of the reason for yeah. the title.
2: It, that scares us. And by the way, for anybody listening, like we do not think we can or should or in any way want to be speaking for a generation. All we really wanted to do was take some Gen Z characters and realize them as fully as we could and explore their highs and lows and joys and not make any pronouncements about how people should feel about this generation.
1: Were there alt titles? Were were there other titles that you considered just in general? Because everything gets tested in Hollywood. So what, what other
2: possibilities were there? Well, we were debating actually for a while just the plus sign, just we thought it would be interesting. And then, I don't know, it felt kind of like too weird and maybe a little pretentious. Then yeah. for a while, we were on a kick for uh, Saga because um, Saga is the name that uh, it stand, can stand for Sexuality and Gender Alliance in schools. And so and we sort of loved the idea because it's like, you know, teen saga. It was sort of a play on that word, but it felt a bit dark. And then we decided to land on Generation. On behalf of everyone who has to put things in headlines
1: or search for the title of the show, allow me to thank you for not just using the yes. plus sign. That's... Yes, 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 yes. So, <laughs> as someone
0: so who's been who, as someone who's been typing Paramount Plus far too many times for, for the last couple weeks, that yes. But
1: also all of these shows that have the the vague sort of short word titles like you. You just can't find that on 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 Google. You you can't make that pull up the right way. So definitely, this is better. But what you're saying is, that was the plus sign always part of your vision? Once you decided to go
2: with it, like, do I have to put it there if I'm going to be writing about the show? Interestingly, <laughs> I, I it was funny because I I just heard last night from some producers that there that that apparently there's some question about search engines and what happens if you look for Generation with a T versus Generation with a plus sign, so I hope it all works out and that it, we don't make it too complicated and annoying. <laughs> yeah,
3: but yeah, um, the plus sign was definitely always kind of an idea we really liked for the title. Um, replacing the T with a plus sign we just thought stylistically it was kind of cool and weird, and also, um, yeah, you know, LGBTQ+, plus. we just thought it was a nice, like, nod to the community that we're trying to kind of show and depict.
0: I love that. Um, The other piece, uh, you know, obviously, as Dan's talking about about Lena, you shadowed her when when she was directing industry. What was the big takeaway that you got from working with her that you were able to bring in to your experience on set with Generation?
3: Yeah, definitely. I think um, probably it's so hard to pick like one big takeaway. I think there were so many things that she kind of taught me um well one really cool thing she actually taught me how to shot list um while i was interning for her we would shot list together and she it was my first time ever really encountering shot listing um and she would have me like type it out and the first time she really guided me through step by step exactly how it should look and then the rest of the time she would kind of expect me to take notes and be able to kind of format it myself, which was really interesting. Um, And I kind of learned how to do that and how to work with her specifically in her style and how she wanted it done and also with her DP. Um, So that was, that was really cool. That was a really cool thing to learn. Um, And also just, I think the way that she injects authenticity into her work is really, really interesting. Um, The way she wants everything to feel so real, the way she is focused on every little detail and making sure that it feels as real as it can possibly be. um, That was definitely another big one. It was, it was really cool to to see her in action and see the little ways that she accomplished that and the bigger ways she accomplished that. Yeah.
1: Okay. So that was when production was happening on industry. Where, where were you in the writing process of this at that time?
3: At that time we had not shot the pilot yet, but we had written the pilot and I'm pretty sure it was locked the written pilot um, at that point. So we had not yet started our mini room. Um, we were about to start our mini room. We started our mini room a couple weeks after I got back to LA.
1: So what conversations did you guys have about both the script in specific, but also the experience that you were about to be heading into?
3: Um with Lena?
1: Yeah. Well in general for you what yeah, what conversations were you having with Lena about the script in general, but also the experience that you were gonna be?
3: She was very, very supportive of the script always and um yeah, it was it was really interesting. We just kind of discussed how themes can be similar on shows like generation and girls and in industry, even though in theory, they're pretty different worlds. Um, and again, authenticity is a big one with her making things feel real, whether they take place in a bank or on a high school campus. Um, yeah, is a really interesting big thing that she's very focused on. Um, she definitely told me a lot about writers rooms in general. But since specifically, I was about to start a mini room. um, It it was a slightly different situation because the writers in our mini room, we weren't actually writing scripts at that point. We were breaking we were um, breaking the season, the first season. So it was a slightly different experience than some of the ones she had encountered. But she did talk to me a little bit about like the formats of writers rooms and um, how they generally work, which was, yeah, really good to know.
1: So, okay, so you're writing this. I'm curious on what the starting point of the structure of the show was. And and did it start with the characters? Did it start with the school? Did it start with the story that you wanted to tell with those things? Where, what was the kernel that you had at the start?
2: It was really began with the characters. And, you know, because Zelda was coming home from school and talking about these people that she was seeing in her Rainbow Alliance, you know, that was... and 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 the ways that these characters were you know, inspiring to her or funny to her. And that became the sort of the genesis, you know, was we really were talking about these kinds of uh, characters. Then we settled on the world um, because we really wanted to set it in a place where it was plausible that all these characters could exist because we have characters who are um, racially and ethnically very diverse, and they identify in all different ways across the um, gender and sexuality spectrum. So we wanted to make sure that the world was big enough that you'd buy that all these people would be together in a school, i.e. not a small town. But we didn't want it to be a big city where it's more accepting or a little bit easier. And, And the thing that's interesting about Anaheim is that you know, there's a conservative element there. And so there would be pushback um, for some of these kids. So that's where we, that was the germ of it. And and I think the thing that, the thing that's been really amazing and so instructive for me as a writer, listening to Zelda is really thinking about how the narratives for these characters can, can be born out of them and stay true to them. And The thing that's so genius about Zelda, she really makes sure that story never takes over. And sometimes I think as a television writer, you're thinking about like, well, what's going to keep the audience interested? And and Zelda really always keeps bringing us back to sometimes the life of a teenager is you're just really bored or you just want to hang out with your friends and kind of be silly and have like a sleepover. And it really forced us to think about how to include those elements of kind of randomness um, within the story. And that's part of, I think, what makes this show feel kind of different and interesting.
1: And by now... Presumably, people will have been able to check it out, so I don't feel that bad about spoiling the first couple minutes of the show. When did the framing device with the very dramatic thing that happens in the mall food court bathroom come into the process, and how did you decide that that was something that you wanted to stretch out across a season as a a structuring device?
3: Yeah, do you want me to—I can take the first part of that. Um, Yeah, so we definitely—well— what we were really thinking about with this show, I mean, it's a show largely about teenage sexuality and teenagers experiencing sexuality a lot of the time for the first time. Um, and kind of the worst case scenario with teen sexuality is a pregnancy. Someone gets pregnant, someone gives birth. Um, those are all kind of generally things that that's like the worst fear a lot of the time. And we wanted to just kind of start with that and start with like the worst possible place traditionally speaking um a teenager could be and um go from there and so we kind of wanted to yeah start with a bang
2: <laughs> and also to then subvert expectations with that story and here's where we really can't give stuff away but the where that story goes and develops um it takes you to some interesting places and i think uh, becomes an interesting story about friendship and and about um, friends empowering each other, which felt like an unexpected way to go. And the other thing about the the structure of the pilot and st- several episodes is we you know we're often telling a story you know seeing a day and then seeing it from one person's perspective and then from another person's perspective. And that idea came out of a conversation that Zelda and I had where we were talking about how people in her generation, are in some ways the most worldly, you know, they're they're like an incredibly worldly generation, you know, their grasp of knowledge and what's going on in the world. I mean, it's so much bigger and faster than I will, you know, can say that was true for me when I was a high schooler, but they're also teenagers. And so with teenager comes a kind of myopia. And I think what was interesting to us, we, we landed on this image of these three characters sitting on a couch each of whom have had completely different days and that they would be bonded together in this one moment, but have no idea what had happened to the other people in the course of their day. And there was something that was so interesting about that intersection that it really drove us to want to to do that kind of Rashomon storytelling device of seeing this single day through each of their perspectives. And that's a structural device that we have maintained um, through many of the episodes Um, but not all, because we also didn't want it to become gimmicky and annoying.
0: You know, in in the writing process, you know, what was, Zelda, what was the most embarrassing thing that you had to explain to Daniel?
3: Oh my gosh.
2: Where to start, huh?
3: Where to start, honestly. (laughs) The most embarrassing thing? Huh. I'm trying to think, like, through the entire writing process. Um, to be honest, I didn't have a ton of moments where I was, like, super embarrassed. Um... I honestly don't remember whose idea the, um, in the pilot, the come in the eye scene was, but I would assume that one of us read that written by the other one and was like, holy shit. Um, I'm pretty sure that was Daniel, but I can't totally remember. Um, but yeah, that was definitely an odd thing to discuss, um, as a father daughter writing team. Um, but, yeah, other than that, I, I didn't have a lot of moments of, like, genuine embarrassment. Um, yeah, because none of the stories are really necessarily drawn from personal experience in that kind of graphic a sense. So I didn't have to explain anything that had, like, happened to me or anything like that, which was
2: good. <laughs> Needless to say, though, there's been a lot of blushing in our household. I'm both, I mean, I'll I'll admit it, <laughs> sometimes it has been oh, okay, we're going to talk about that? Okay, let's let's talk about that. But at the same time, you're a parent and you just crave, you know, the, the ideal, right, is to have uh, open and honest communication with your kids. So even in those moments when I feel embarrassed, I, I'm also grateful because I feel like what's happening is that we're able to talk about things really candidly and that's a gift. Absolutely.
1: Zelda, I don't get the impression that Daniel um, embarrasses easy, uh, do you ever occasionally make up stories, make up slang, make up situations just to mess with him?
3: No, I I, not in the writing process, at least. Um, <laughs> I definitely don't make stuff up to mess with him, um,
2: she yeah, finds other ways to mess with I me.
3: Find, I find other ways <laughs> to mess with him. Yeah, he found out sort of recently that um, my brother and I threw a party where the cops showed up. Um, and that was, he was embarrassed on behalf of his children in that situation. But other than that, um, yeah, not a lot of moments of like...
2: I don't know if that one was embarrassment. <laughs> that one was a little more like, yeah, anger, disappointment, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> Um
0: you know one one of the other things I'm I'm curious, you know, Zelda so much of this is obviously pulled from your own experience, but how many of these characters specifically are based on on your friends and have any uh, have any of them come back to you and said, "Hey, don't use this?"
3: Um no. Not a lot of my friends have seen anything yet, um, just because, or read any of the scripts or anything, just because um, they're not allowed to yet, because it's not out yet. Um, but no, I, I tried not to base anything in the show off of anything real from my high school experience or anything that my friends have gone through. Um, just, I don't know, We we didn't want this to be like just a retelling of my high school experience. We wanted this to be very much about these characters and things that these characters in particular would do. And these characters have kind of all become their own people in a way. Initially, one of the characters was kind of based off of a friend of mine. Every time I wrote for her, I was kind of thinking of my friend. Um, But honestly, she's evolved so much since then, just because other writers have related to her and written for her and other people have added and contributed to her character so much. And yeah, I just think she's become, she's gone in a completely different direction than I was thinking of her at first. Um, So yeah, that's that's been really interesting.
1: What was the point at which you first mentioned to your friends that this was something you were casually doing? And what was their reaction when it actually became something more than that?
3: Um, When we first sold the pilot, um, and we were first writing the pilot, I remember I went up to one of my friends, um, and she was the first person I told. She was also the first person I ever came out to. um, And I was just like, Last night I sold a pitch to HBO and she was like, What? (laughs) And I was like, Yeah, I'm like writing a pilot for HBO. (laughs) And she was like, Oh, that's cool. Like, what? Um, And then it kind of just like there were random updates every now and then. And then suddenly I was, suddenly it was happening and suddenly the pilot was greenlit and suddenly I was, you know, taking a semester off from school to shoot a TV show. Yeah, so there were kind of a lot of moments where my friends realized that, like, this was going on. Um, But I definitely think the point at which I decided to take time off from school was when my friends realized it was, like, a real thing. Mainly just because I take school very seriously, and I don't think any of them saw me ever taking a break from high school at any point. Um, It's very unlike me to take time off from school. Um, So, yeah, I think that was very shocking to them at first. And I think then they realized like, oh shit, she's, she's really doing this. Yeah.
1: Why, why did it take you so long to come out to your friends as a screenwriter?
3: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> um, it's funny. I, I kind of just like, they knew, they knew I liked writing, but I didn't really start screenwriting until I was, yeah, like 16. So yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't don't say things like that, Zelda. People are just going to be annoyed. <laughs> don't, listen, stop. Listeners, don't be annoyed. I,
0: I was working at a baseball card shop at 16 and, and afraid to drive. That's that, that was me at 16. And I had no idea I was gay at 16 yet.
2: I feel like so, i was learning how to tie my shoes.
1: I, I don't know. Yeah,
0: I feel like a dinosaur right now,
1: yeah. Daniel, how early in the process did you know that
2: you wanted to direct this project? From the get-go... I love directing so much and it's just, you know, uh, and it's something that I'm so, I'm so passionate about and I think that I really wanted to direct this show because I felt like I had spent so much time with Zelda and understanding her kind of inside out view and I wanted to make sure that in the realization of the show that that inside outness would be preserved And it's a hard thing to explain, you know, to other people, but it really, I knew that I wanted the camera to be in these kids' perspectives. I knew that I wanted to shoot it in a way so that we were living in their subjective world and that we weren't going to be shooting objective coverage. I knew that I wanted to take risks where the, you know, characters are texting and the adult characters talking in the background, but they're just going to stay out of focus because the kids aren't even thinking about, you know, that person. And in all aspects of it, I mean, in terms of the music and in terms of the visual language, like I just wanted to make sure that it felt that the authorship of a teenager felt like it was being preserved in the realization of the show. So, and- I just love directing. I love working with actors. This cast is beyond. They are so extraordinarily gifted and largely newcomers. And so the ability as a director to then work with them and help to craft the roles with them was a gift. Zelda, when will you be ready to direct?
3: I don't know. I, I don't honestly know if directing is something I want to try yet. Um, Yeah, I don't know if it's something I'm not interested in at the moment. Um, I don't know. I would like to try it at some point maybe, but I don't think I'll be, I don't think I'll feel ready for that for a while. Yeah.
2: And aspects of production Zelda does, actively does not like. I mean, I can sit in an editing room and watch the same thing over and over again and then, like, take two frames out and how is it different? And for Zelda, it was like watching paint dry. She was like, I want to see a cut and then I want to see another thing. But- <laughs>
3: yeah, I really, I really couldn't handle it. It was just, like, staring at, a, staring at one screen and one thing happening on one screen for so long was really hard for me, yeah.
0: Well, uh, you know, the show is is likely to draw some comparisons, but just because of the subject matter to, to Euphoria over on HBO, you guys are obviously on HBO Max, although you do live alongside Euphoria, which is streaming there. You know, can you talk a little bit about the differences that you see between the two shows? And, and when you did see Euphoria in the creative process of of crafting this show, did that change anything? Did that inform it? What was your reaction to you know, to go, oh shit, you know, HBO's got this big show and it's about a lot of similar themes.
3: Yeah, I love You yeah. For I think You For It's great. Um, I definitely think on paper they're very similar because they're both teen shows and they're both shows that take place in high school. Um, and they have a lot of the same sort of themes um, in terms of sexuality and identity and teenagers. Um, but I definitely think that when you actually watch these two shows and like look at them side by side, they are pretty different um, tonally as well as just, in terms of characters, in terms of setting, I think they just feel like very different shows overall. Yeah.
2: And you know, our show, we were really blessed to be able to develop it within a half-hour format, where it just feels like there's less pressure on story. You know, I think when you have our shows, that there's a lot of pressure to have you know story engines and have lots of soap and twists and turns and so on. And I think one of the things that's really inspirational about working within the half hour format is you can be a little bit looser. Your characters can take you to some unexpected places. There doesn't have to be, you know, kind of this plot point following. So that has been kind of a a gift for our show. But I do agree with Zelda. I think when you watch them, they just they, they feel like very, very different shows. And I think that's amazing. By the way we're not upset about anybody's comparing our show to Euphoria. Euphoria is a great show. And like, who, who would not want to be compared to a great show? I just think that, um, when you look at them, there's different, there is, there's a difference. One of the things that Zelda was also really important to Zelda was to sort of capture something about what it is to be a teenager. That is, um, how you can move between joy and pain so quickly. And Zelda talks about this so beautifully, you know, how she'll be sitting with her friends and they'll be talking, you know, one second they'll be, like, showing these silly videos to each other and then the next second they're talking about climate change. And that that mood and shift can happen so rapidly. That was something that we really wanted to capture in the show. And so there are a lot of moments where something really funny is happening and then something really poignant happens, like, immediately thereafter. And I think our show really tries to, like, live in that world of kind of what it feels like to be a teenager moving between all these different moods so quickly.
1: Now, what I was wondering beyond just sort of the, you know, kids are not all right high school aspect of it, I was, I was curious if you felt like the show that Euphoria has, I don't know, expanded what the content is allowed to be for shows of this type. Like I'm watching, for example, in whichever the second or third episode with the locker room scene, and I'm thinking, boy, that's a lot of dicks, but it's fewer dicks than in Euphoria. Uh, uh, do, Do you feel like there are things you were able to get away with because maybe the shock factor, they had to deal with the brunt of it, and maybe you guys can be just a show as opposed to the show with the dicks?
2: That's an interesting question. And by the way, I, I hope you're right, because I would love I, because I would honestly, I would you know, that's it. It's it's I'm I'm really happy that you brought up that scene, because what I would love is for people to watch that scene where nothing very eventful happens. Right. I mean, it's kind of a short moment. there are a lot of dicks in that scene. But the reason there are a lot of dicks is because we wanted to say, isn't it interesting that you can have a queer kid as part of an athletic team. And that he can be surrounded by a lot of straight kids who are totally unselfconscious around him. And that's what we wanted people to look at. And that's what's felt like it could be really new and different to see on TV. And um, so I think if euphoria has paved the way for people to s- stop thinking about what things might feel like shock value, then that is really helpful. We also really wanted, in terms of the sexuality in our show, I mean, there's, there is, you know, there's sort of intense sexual things that happen in Euphoria. The sexuality in our show is a little bit different. I mean, it's, it's very graphic, but, you know, it, we, we tried to make it a little bit more reflective of what sexual experiences are often like for teenagers, which are awkward, weird, uncomfortable, funny. Sometimes they're like... You know, in places that are too public or they're too bright or, you know, and that there was something that felt uh, n- messy. That can feel messy about them. It's never as good as it necessarily should be. Right. so I think we wanted to kind of live in that sort of awkward, messy land of teenage sexuality as well.
1: Zelda, how weird does it feel to be having these conversations with your father in a Zoom screen next to you? And has it become less weird over the past couple of years? Because you've obviously had to do a fair amount of this, at least.
3: Oh, yeah, it has 100 percent become less weird. Um, I've definitely kind of gotten very used to it, I would say. Um, at this point, it's not as weird as it would have been, like, even a year ago, I think, to be honest. Like, I think we've just, yeah, gotten used to being honest with each other.
1: Is that is that a thing that you ever would have hoped would become less weird? It seems like some things you don't maybe want to become immune to finding weird.
3: Yeah, no, <laughs> definitely, definitely. I don't know. I I think that that specifically is something that could have stayed weird, but um, I do think that um, we've gotten to a point where we're able to have really honest communication about almost any topic now, which is I think really important for a, a healthy. Parent-child relationship, just in general. So I don't know. I I think it's been overall positive.
2: But some things she's not sharing, right? I mean, we didn't learn about the cops at the party until a month afterwards. So
3: still have secrets.
2: No. Not everything is on the table. How did he end up finding out about that? Uh, I told him. I mean, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, by the way, a month ago, this happened or?
3: My brother and I, my brother and I were joking about it and he was in the other room and I don't think we knew that. And he was like, what are you guys talking about? Like, what's funny? And I I remember, I think it was me. I think I turned to Dash and I was like, I'm going to tell them. And Dash was like, don't tell them. Dash is my brother. Um. And then I just eventually, they got really suspicious and then I had to tell them after that. Um, I just thought it was really funny. I thought they would laugh and they didn't
0: laugh as hard as I was expecting them to.
2: Then there was the so. time when we found out about the fake ID.
0: So is the punishment having to go sit in the editing room for two hours?
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, sadly, um, yeah. <laughs> the, the fake ID was a whole other whole other situation. <laughs>
0: Well, we always like to end these interviews with the same question. What are you guys watching and enjoying right now?
2: RuPaul's Drag Race. RuPaul's Drag
3: Race. Yes! It's such a good show. I love that show so much. Um yeah, it's incredible. Um in addition to that, uh Fleabag and Succession are like two of my favorite shows of all time. I've rewatched Succession like four times since the pandemic started. It's just my go-to. It's, it's interesting. It's an odd comfort show. I wouldn't have thought Succession would ever be like a comfort show, but it, it has been. It's amazing. Um, yeah. And also Freaks and Geeks, which is yes. amazing.
0: Yeah. One of my all-time favorites. Yeah.
3: So good.
1: Have you had the chance to meet any of the Succession people yet? Because obviously in a normal world, there would be a premiere party and, and people would be crossing over from all the shows and all of that. But we're not in that world anymore. No,
3: I don't think I've. Yeah, I don't think I've met anybody who's worked on Succession yet. Oh, Mary Birdsong, who's in our show. But um, she she played Greg's mom. Uh, but other than that, no, I have not met anybody who's worked on Succession. I really hope to soon.
2: Oh, my God. That would be so exciting. Yeah.
0: Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you
1: so much for having us. The first three episodes of Generation are now available to stream on HBO Max. Number five.
0: As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches are Mayans, which returns for its new season on FX. Netflix bows doc Operation Varsity Blues. HBO Max's long-awaited Justice League Snyder Cut debuts – Keeping Up with the Kardashians returns for its final season on E! And Disney's next Marvel show, Falcon and Winter Soldier, makes its launch. Dan, what do you got?
1: Man, it is a weird week. And I've now said this a couple weeks in a row, so I'm going to say it one more time. It is another week in which there is not a major new series premiere on any of the major streaming services. Uh, You know, for... A lot of weeks, it wasn't like the lights were out entirely because WandaVision was premiering weekly, but it, it, there have been a few weeks in a row without a new series premiere on any of these services. Next week, as you just said, Falcon and Winter Soldier will premiere on on Disney Plus, so that'll end the streak. Uh, but that is embargoed for next week, so I can't talk about it. I can't talk about calls on Apple TV. Plus, which premieres next week and is also embargoed. I spent a lot of time yesterday watching HBO's upcoming QAnon documentary. That's embargoed. So it is a it is an odd critics corner in which I'm going to tell you the things that I told you to watch last week remain the things to watch. So, as I said, the first three episodes of Generation, to me, feel like a certain amount of inexperience is evident, but also fantastic cast, some really funny lines Ton of potential here, uh, so totally worth checking out. Especially if you were interested in the interview you just heard. I think you got a very good sense of the Barneses and their voice, so that is always helpful.
0: And you know, I'm gonna. Here's my my disclaimer: I'm not a critic, so take another shot. Um, I really like Generation for whatever that my opinion is worth. Um, I, I tend to love shows about family and especially anything that explores sexuality. And I loved the casting here, and it just felt sharp. And I, yeah, I'm I'm in. Count me in
1: for this. So there's that, which I did talk about in a little bit more depth in last week's podcast. And I also talked about the new season of Last Chance You, Last Chance You basketball in last week's podcast, and it premiered on Wednesday. On Netflix, and I've now seen the whole thing, all eight episodes, and it's it's fantastic. I am just always a fan of the Last Chance U franchise. If you hadn't had any interest in the various football seasons, you can totally hop in with no with no plot uh, that you need to be caught up on for the new season. If you're kind of interested in the basketball side of things, and then you can go back and watch the five football seasons uh, because it really is just one of it's it's the best ongoing sports documentary series currently on television by a lot and the basketball season is is great it has fantastic characters it has good drama it does take place in the winter of 2020 so at a certain point you know where things are going in the world and that adds a little bit of extra poignancy to it um it's it's really good so those are really the things you should watch this weekend and And yeah, maybe, maybe next week, a few more details when a few embargoes have lifted on things, uh, but weird moment in television, but April and May are looking really packed as hell. So get ready.
0: Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood Reporters TV podcast. We will be back next week when we'll be joined by Falcon and Winter Soldier head writer, Malcolm Spellman.
1: Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review thing. It really does help spread the word of mouth. And we're always happy to come chat with you guys on Twitter. So come let us know questions, comments, concerns. Uh, We asked, of course, for mailbag questions. Well, we ask every week, but we asked a few weeks ago. And, you know, maybe they've gotten a little bit stale because they've been sitting there for a little while. And we haven't needed to use mailbag, but... Who knows? Maybe next week you can email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the number 5 at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie.
0: Until next week, Dan.